This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. If you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 143 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I've mentioned it on the show before, though, but you can also find me on YouTube. I'm not really all that hard to find. Just search Wax Museum Podcast. What I'm trying to do with that channel is to either share content that enhances something I've talked about on the show. So, for example, I gave some visuals for the most iconic cards from the last two weeks. Or I'm just trying to show some stuff in addition to the show that I I think you'll enjoy. So, um, one of those things is something that I posted this week, which is a mail day. Um, That works out because I don't really have time to discuss that today. But it's something I still want to share nonetheless. So, Make sure you search that out if it sounds like something that might interest you. Uh, Well, the reason why I don't have time today, though, is because today's episode is the seventh installment of the Listener Mailbag. These episodes are usually a lot of fun to put together, and I've heard from some of you guys that you enjoy them too, so I figured it's time to do another one. You guys asked some great questions. I tried to answer at least one question from everyone that asked one. And I wanted to make sure that I spent an adequate amount of time on each one. So uh, let's go ahead and just jump right in with question number one, which comes from mostly 90s basketball cards and ties in nicely to the last couple of episodes. He asked, did reviewing the most iconic cards for each franchise make you add any cards to your PC wish list? Yes, 100%. Um, Especially now that some of them are coming back down to earth. I think it wasn't until the pandemic and then the the subsequent card boom that I realized I was taking a lot of these cards for granted because they were just seemingly always there. And as we were going through these market changes, there were some cards that I'd always kind of wanted that um, became a lot more difficult or in most cases a lot more expensive to obtain. And I'll give you an example here. A couple days ago, I was even looking at a slabbed David Robinson rookie. And I think I saw a PSA 8 for something like 25 shipped. It was tempting. Um, I didn't get it. I'm pretty sure I have a raw copy and it's in good condition. But, you know, maybe I'm succumbing to some of the same practices that I've been a little critical of in the past. I think some of these cards look great in, in graded holders. And owning slab copies could give that segment of my collection some continuity in the process. So the answer to your question is yes. Over time, I'll probably pick up all the cards from that list that are relatively affordable. That's the key. No uh, LeBron RPAs for me. All right, next up, Halicek stole the cards, wrote, I always respected how the Pacers never tank, 
But is there a part of you that wants to embrace a full-on tank tank mode like Philly's quote-unquote process, where you would be bad for a couple of years, get some good draft picks, and contend down the road? Or are you fine with the status quo, being a 5-8 through eight seed, an average team year in and year out, and hoping for the best to win a title? Thanks. Love the show. This is a pretty tough question, so let's crunch the numbers here. Since joining the NBA, the Pacers have made the playoffs 27 times. And of course, the majority of those have been since I started watching them. Um, In the last 10 years, they've made the playoffs eight times, and they have a winning percentage of 57%. So, you know, being in the Eastern Conference, they're probably always going to compete for a spot, even if it is a low one. But they haven't actually won a series since 2014, and that's getting a little tiring. So um, if they could be bad for a couple of years at the price of getting a couple of really good players in the draft, I think I'm on board with that. Now, I say that. I watch pretty much every Pacers game. If I miss one, I watch the replay. Um, I think it would be really hard to do that with a team that is just constantly losing. I don't know... You know, even if the end result is good, that would be kind of hard to stomach. But at the same time, you know, that might give me a couple rookies that I could be excited about chasing um, when it comes to cards. Because outside of Chris Duarte, I haven't really been excited about a Pacers rookie in a long time. They haven't had a pick in the top nine since 1989. Um, I know they picked Jonathan Bender at five in 1999, but that was a trade. So they really haven't had a pick of their own since 1989. Um, You know, yeah, bring on the tank. Let's see what could happen. Uh, Speaking of losing games, my friend Greg, aka 727 Sports Cards, asked, how much did it destroy your soul to see the Pistons beat the Pacers two days prior to the 17th anniversary of the Malice at the Palace? Asking for a friend. Um, That friend, of course, is Greg, who is a Pistons fan. You know, right before that game started, I tweeted something to the effect of, I hope the Pacers beat the Pistons by at least 45 tonight. Um, I got greedy. I should have just hoped for a win. That was a boring game. Pacers did not win by 45. They did not win. Uh, They lost by 8. Continuing the theme of Pacers and Pistons, 77 NCAA champs ask, if you could capture the Malice in the Palace as a card... What would you want to be on it? Auto, game used, event used, jersey, booklet, anything is game, just not box toppers or big memorabilia. So um, I'm guessing when he says no big memorabilia, he means like oversized or jumbo stuff because he said relics and booklets were fair game. Normally, I'm not a big fan of booklets for a number of reasons. They're hard to store. They're awkward to display. But in this case, I think it's necessary in order to fit everything in. So I would take a vertical booklet, because those look so much better. It's got to have an acetate surface, um, just like some of the preferred stat line cards. And then on the inside, on the left panel, it's going to be a picture of Ron Artest. He's being escorted off the court by Chuck Person. His jersey's all stretched out. The bottom of that picture will fade out into a white area so he can sign it. Ron Artest, 91. And then he would inscribe it in quotes, Malice at the Palace. Um, The right side of the booklet, the right panel, I would have two jumbo memorabilia windows. The top one's going to have a piece of the actual stretched out jersey from the brawl. Um, Now, granted, we don't know where that's at. You know, it's not likely, but hey, I'm fantasy booking here. 
Um, and it would indicate that above the piece. This jersey was worn by Ron Artest on November 19, 2004. The bottom piece of memorabilia would be the actual cup that was thrown at Ron. And then, of course, it would indicate that as well. Um, this cup was thrown by John Green on November 19, 2004. So I hope you're able to visualize all of that. I think it would look really cool. Um, if you're not able to visualize that, I you know, I took some time after I wrote this up because I, I wanted to see it myself. So I, I created a little mock-up. I'm going to post that on social media. Uh, the last time I did that, I got some grief for my Photoshopping not being very good. Yes, I know that. Okay, just just think of the concept, though. It's about the concept. Be kind. Uh, but anyway, be on the lookout for that because I, I'm pretty happy with what uh, I was able to dream up there. Okay, next up, Boom Baby Binder wrote, what would be the ultimate Pacers card that you wish had been created to this point? Um, and to clarify, not necessarily the best card that hasn't been created, but more... More a, I wish a card, I had a card of this player or moment. Um, I'm going to go with something that's possible, but will probably never happen. I want to see an immaculate jumbo patch of some of the ABA Pacers using the ABA jerseys. So it could be George McGinnis, Roger Brown, Mel Daniels. And um, these ABA jerseys are pretty tough to come by. I know there are some out there. I know they're locked up in collections. But as we've seen before, collections move from person to person over time. So you never know. Next up, 34lorem85 asks, How do you organize your collection between boxes, binders, top loaders, etc.? Always a struggle to keep organized. Yes, I feel you on that. Um, I think my answer to this question changes every couple of months. I get asked it a lot. And I haven't really found one way that I like. I think I'm getting closer, though, with each and every attempt. Uh, you can hear more about my latest attempt in episode 119, but right now I have a combination of different cases and boxes for cards and magnetics. also have boxes full of top loaders. Those all get kind of heavy. They're not really easy to look through. That's why for my shiny stuff, I have a couple of Z folio binders, mostly pacers, refractors, gold, silvers, those kind of things. I like those because I can flip through them easily and everyone, you know, everyone wants to look through their cards. I don't think I'll ever find a perfect system, but as long as I can find something that's somewhat functional, I can live with that. Okay, Alex, aka Connell Collection, wrote... You win the $2 million card lottery and you're told you can become the owner of one single basketball card. Which card are you picking? Well, I don't need $2 million. In fact, um, the card that I would select sold a few weeks ago for $10,000. So you could save your money there. Just give me $10,000. But um, it was the 2005-2006 Upper Deck SP game used by the letter patch of Bill Russell. And it was the R specifically, first letter of his last name. Um, this came from a warm-up jacket that Upper Deck purchased in, the, I believe, the 2000s is when they made the purchase. At least that's when they manufactured the card. As you guys know, they didn't have Celtics nameplates on the jerseys back then. So this is, you know, the closest thing we'll get is a warm-up nameplate. Um, there's not a lot of Russell relics out there. And I think this set in general belongs in a museum, but I would love to own it. Um, I held one of these at the National, not the letter R, but it was a different one. But um, I even asked to take a picture with it. That's how much I, I really think of this set. So that would be my choice. 
And yes, it is out there. Someone posted it on their Instagram. They seem to really enjoy the card. I'm happy for them. Um, but yeah, that would be a dream card of mine in the future. Okay. The next question comes from Antoine 3000 who asks, will you be having any active players on the show in the future? Good question. Um, I don't have any planned. I'm not opposed to it. Um, but uh, I haven't actually reached out to any current players just because I don't really have those kind of connections. So if they're not replying to me on social media, then I'm probably never going to hear from them. Uh, Who knows, though? Maybe now that games are opened up, maybe the next time I go to a game and if I'm doing autographs or something, I might mention something. Maybe like Miles Turner would be a lot of fun to have on the show. I, I know he's done a few shows before. Next question. MC Basketball PC wrote, what hobby goals did you have for 2021? Which ones did you accomplish? And are you making any adjustments to wrap up certain goals before the new year? You know what? I'll be honest with you. And this is interesting considering I did all of those episodes in 2020. I had people talk about their goals. I talked about mine. We did updates. I gave updates on mine. It was a big deal then. I think 2020 and 2021 have kind of blurred together for me. I don't think I actually set any goals, or at least if I did, I don't remember them. But um, in general, it's going to be the same as always. Number one, get more organized. Uh, and then number two, pick up the cards on my pyramid, which would be Pacer stuff, Final stuff, and legend stuff. I feel like I've had a pretty good year. I haven't actually kept track, but it uh, feels like it's been a good year. So I'd say I've done pretty, uh, I've done a pretty good job with my goals. All right. Um, don't care. Go cats. Ask, have you ever ruined any cards to try to turn them into art? For example, I always thought it would be cool to make a table with a clear epoxy coating over the top of a bunch of cheap basketball cards laid out on a table. You know, I've seen some of these projects before and I'm intrigued by them. I know Andy, um, or the guys at any card exchange did that with the Michael Jordan bar. They had the epoxy and everything. Um, I saw Nick, who was on the show not too long ago. He did something that was a little less destructive, where he had just a kind of a a panel of glass, I think, and he put a bunch of 72 Tops Commons underneath it and put that on top of the dresser, and it looked pretty cool. Um, I haven't personally attempted that on my own, though, but I have done a couple other projects that um, some might deem destructive. So I mentioned... um, I think I might have mentioned on this episode, my 72 signed top set. That was one of my goals for 2020. Well, there was a point where I thought it would never get done. So um, I had this Lakers championship card that I needed signed, and I thought it would be ideal to get the coach to sign it. Well, that coach was Bill Sharman, and he had since passed away. So he wasn't going to sign it, and I couldn't find any copies that he had signed, so I was kind of stuck. Um so I had an idea where I, t- I took a Bill Sharman Panini sticker auto, I peeled it, trimmed around the auto, and I adhered it to the card. Um, it turned out all right. I don't know. It kind of felt like cheating. It, it was a placeholder. I wasn't super happy with it. I ended up getting someone else. I think Gail Goodrich. I had signed one. But um, I don't know. You know, it, it, it was something different. But yes, I did try that. Um, another thing that I did is um, I wanted a, an 0506 Danny Granger Topps Finest Gold Refractor to put in my refractor binder. 
The problem was the only copies that they made were autographed, or they had an autograph sticker on them, and I didn't like that. I don't put autographs in my binder. I know I'm kind of weird like that. So um, I found a copy on eBay that had a faded autograph, and it was cheaper. I thought, you know what? This could be the, the perfect solution for me. It's a cheaper copy. The auto's faded anyway, so let me just peel that sticker off. And I didn't know what it would look like underneath it. I was just guessing. So um, that one turned out okay. I, I know I plugged my YouTube earlier. I'm, I put that video on my YouTube at some point. You can go find that if you want to. But um, I was pretty happy with that one. So yes, from time to time, I will ruin a card if I feel like I have a more practical purpose for it. Okay, Pack to the Future podcast ask a family member who isn't into sports cards comes over for the holidays and asks to see one of your cards. What card do you show off and why? I noticed this question got a lot of likes in the comments, and I, I like it as well. So um, I'd say it depends on which family member it is. And I'm going to go with the educator's mindset here and, and say that you have to meet somebody where they're at. What I mean by that is this. Um, don't show them the cards that appeal a bunch to you. Try and find something that appeals to them. And then you can maybe slowly draw them in. So um, I did that with my brother-in-law a couple years ago who is a big Indianapolis Colts fan. Now, I have Colts cards that I think are just awesome. Like I've got a Marvin Harrison nameplate card. That's probably not going to do much for him though. So I, I found something a little bit different. Um, back in 2015, uh, him and my sister came down for a Colts-Jags game. We all went together. Well, Panini got a pylon from that game and included it in one of their game-dated sets. So I got him one of those as part of his Christmas gift a couple years later. Now, I didn't make it the sole gift because I didn't you know, want it to be like, hey, you have to appreciate this card. It was kind of something I added in on the side um, just to see how he might react to see if he appreciated or not. It definitely didn't convert him to cards, and I, I didn't expect it to do so, but I think it made him a little more receptive to the idea of collecting, and it gave him just a small glimpse of one of the reasons why I collect. So um, once again, it just depends on who it is and what they're into, but meet them where they're at. Keeping with the theme of non-collectors, slangandrocks.pc asks, how do you respond when a non-collector friend asks you what your collection is worth? Well, truth be told, I don't know how much my collection's worth. I would have to add up how much my Pacers patches have depreciated over the years. But um, I guess I, if I wanted to figure it up, I'd go through my top 10 cards, and then I'd kind of go from there. But if I knew that total and it was one of my close friends asking, I'd just tell them, you know, I, I if it's a friend that I, I'm good enough friends with, you know, they're not going to question my motives and they're not going to, you know, think anything differently. So I'd just tell them. But um, as for everyone else, I'd probably use a little bit of humor to try and deflect the question. And, and I'd say something like, you know, well, I'm certainly not going to retire off of these anytime soon and just leave it at that. You know, some people, if they don't have a collecting gene, they're just never going to get it. All right. Before I move into the second half of today's questions, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support this show, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, 
and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle, grind, spam, profit. We're the Rip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, thank you, Rip Gods. Um, the next question comes from Hugo, a.k.a. Nebrolian PC, who wrote, What mistakes did you make in this hobby? Have you learned anything from them? And if so, what? Well, I've been in this hobby a long time, so in turn, yes, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. Now, I know a lot of people automatically equate um, selling regrets or things that they sold you know, too early, quote-unquote, to hobby mistakes. I talked about all that in episode 74. Hindsight's 2020. You know, selling something at the wrong time is not something I'm going to lose any sleep over. You know, those are not mistakes. Um, Now, I say that, and then about 15 years ago, I I sold a Ron Artest 101 because I thought I was done collecting him. It wasn't, you know, because I could make money off of it. I I was just done. So um, I could justify that at the time. But I'd really love to have that one back. It was from UD Ultimate. That was the only thing I've sold that really bothers me still. And I think about it probably at least once a month, which is um, irrational for a piece of cardboard. But um, it is what it is. You know, that that's really the only card that I really, really, really regret selling. Um, the things that I consider to be mistakes, though, are the goofs that have shaped my philosophy of collecting in, in 2021. And it's ever-evolving. So I told a story on here before, maybe a year ago, where I engaged in trade talks with a dealer, only to discover that I didn't really want to trade for his card. So I backed out, and and really it it was a big waste of his time. Um, It wasn't right for me to do that, even though I didn't do it on purpose. I was a little scared at that time that, you know, that action might have severed a relationship when thankfully it didn't, but I've been mindful of that every time I go to make a trade ever since. Um, And then now that I have this platform of this podcast, anytime I make a noteworthy mistake in the hobby, I'm going to do my best to talk about it. Um, You know, and I've already told that trade story. So that was an example, but I'm a firm believer that experience is the best teacher. And sometimes though we can live through other people's experiences. We don't have to make all of the same mistakes um, when we have this community that we can kind of watch and learn from. Okay, next up, PK Cards asks, how have you done selling on Comp C? He said, I took advantage of their appreciation offer and finally sent in around 200 cards. I'm excited to start using them to sell some stuff that's just sitting around to pick up stuff I like. Any pointers on selling would be appreciated. Well, uh, my 20 select cards have dropped. I've sold a couple of those already, including a Dwight Howard diamond card for $55, which I was very excited about. Um, my 10 elite cards processed in the last day, and I've had several of the uh, the usual ComC piranhas trying to get those at the lowest possible price. So that's been a, a fun back and forth. But, um, you know, a lot of stuff I'm going to be patient on. But my recommendation is to see where you can establish a monopoly. And that's a term that they use on the ComC website. If you go to your inventory, if you have the only one of a card that's listed on the site, it'll say something like, you have a ComC monopoly on this card. Um, additionally, I like to see if there are any copies that are listed on eBay. It says if there's one or two, I'll try and price my card on ComC where it will undercut the listing on eBay as well, because eventually ComC is going to post it there too. 
Um, you do have to be careful though because the the price shows up a little higher on eBay than it does on Com C. So if you find somebody that's selling something that's cross-listed, you can kind of figure up the percentage and figure out the math there. But um, you know, Com C is not for everybody, but it, I, it works for me, and it's something that I'd like to do more of in the future if I see that you know things are moving as they should. I know they had a, a rough couple of years now, but um, it works for me. I don't want to put a lot of effort into moving cards, so I hope it works for you too. All right, Steve, aka Vintage Pacers, ask: Is there a mashup of menu items um, that Taco Bell hasn't tried yet that you would like them to? And when he says mashup, he means like uh, quesadilla plus chalupa equals quesalupa. And then he said, "Have they ever missed on one of the mashups that they've done?" Steve, I'll be honest with you here. As much as I love Taco Bell. I don't try every one of the specialty items because, you know, usually they're like four or five dollars and and then that item alone won't fill me up. Whereas I can take that same four or five dollars order from the value menu and, and have to practically put myself in an adult diaper. Uh, that's the sign that, you know, money well spent. Um, with that being said, though, the quesalupa is delicious. I had something four or five months ago where they put nacho fries inside the burrito that was fantastic. I ordered that one multiple times. The crispy chicken sandwich taco did not impress me, even though it was good. It just didn't impress me. Those are the ones that come to my mind real quick. I'm not sure if there's anything else I would combine, though. I'm a pretty simple guy. So I go there, you know, at least weekly. Um, my order is usually two beef burritos and two spicy potato soft tacos, which totals out to $4.28. So you really can't beat that. Okay, the next question comes from Chasing Exquisite 3 who asks, lots of hobby news this year, biggest overreactions and underreactions. I think the biggest overreactions revolved around the Fanatics takeover. There's just so much that we don't know. And people were weighing, you know, immediately weighing in with their opinion on if the switch would be good or not. Sometimes we just need to stop and take some time. As far as the underreactions... I would have to point back to the loss of all um, worth point archives and then to the PWCC pricing information. And the lack of response to those two things tells me that people don't really grasp the, the possible long-term implications that come with them. Information is our most valuable asset in the hobby, and a lot of it seemingly vanished in the blink of an eye. Something doesn't seem right there, but you know, people just kind of moved on. It is what it is. Okay. Tyson asks, what are your favorite inserts for each one of the last three decades? You know, I'm not really much of an insert guy, and I never have been. Um, there aren't any that jumped out to me when I first read that question, so that tells me I don't have any definitive favorites. But um, I will go through. There have been some that I've liked over the years and, and some that I've talked about on this show. The 90s, there are so many to choose from. I, I really can't narrow that down. I will say, though, I wish Reggie Miller was included in more of the sets, but um, he isn't in too many of the real noteworthy ones, except for maybe, I, I like Platinum Portraits. He did make that one. Uh, for the 2000s, I really liked 0405 Fleer Showcase Hot Hands, and then the Panini era, I'll probably go with one of the innovation sets. I really liked Stained Glass. They did that in, I think, 2012 and 2013. Um which Tops actually did a version of that in the late 90s called Gallery of Heroes, but 
there weren't any pacers in that st- in that set, whereas stained glass had plenty. I mean, even Evan Turner made a, a stained glass pacers card. All right, the Bouvier asks, which one basketball card that was never created did you wish existed, i.e. a set that didn't include a player you love or a year that didn't feature a card you wish you could have? So in other words, he's asking for a set I like that didn't include a player I wanted or a product that might have featured a set one year and not another. Um, even though I'm not going to choose a 90s Reggie Miller card, there this kind of goes well with the last question where I said he was left out of a lot of sets. One thing that we didn't get from him in the Panini era that I really wanted was a, just a nameplate card. We didn't get that. We got patches, but we didn't get a dedicated nameplate card. And the one I wanted specifically would have been Immaculate Nameplate Nobility. Um, I've accumulated a number of different pacers from that set over the years, and it, it would have been the cherry on top to be able to add a Reggie Miller as well. Um, other notable omissions that come to mind, and, and I mentioned these before, but Ron Artest was not in either one of 2004 Chrome or 2004 Finest, uh, which were two products with two designs that I really enjoyed, but, you know, he punched fans, so that's why he wasn't in there. But I was disappointed nonetheless. Next up, Evan, a.k.a. Geech Quest Cards, asks, How are you able to keep up with all of your Instagram accounts and never slip up making a card porn post? Uh, sorry to disappoint you guys, I'm not card porn. Um, I did slip up one time and make an all-caps Rip Gods post on my Wax Museum profile, but I caught it pretty soon after the fact, so sorry. No no um, exciting things coming from me. Okay, good question here from Hoops Cards and More 91 who wrote, Have you ever considered doing a full-time job related to the hobby? Um, this isn't the first person to ask this either. It might surprise you. The other person that's asked this was Mrs. Wax Museum. She asked me if I would ever consider opening a card shop, which on the one hand, it was kind of crazy thinking that I, I had the um, the go-ahead. That was kind of like, do, do I really have the go-ahead for this or the green light for this? But, um, you know, my fear is that it would probably ruin something that I love if I opened a card shop. And, and this was kind of what Mark Twain was talking about when he discussed the great law of human action. If you willingly choose to work on something you love, that's great. But the moment someone tells you that you have to do it, or your survival or your well-being depends on it, well, then it's not so fun. Everything takes on a different tone. But uh, if the right job came along, I would definitely prefer that over what I'm doing right now. Uh, I, I guess I do have a story that goes with this. I've never told it before, but last year I, I thought I had a shot of getting my foot in the door into the industry. Um, not to say it would have been a full-time gig. I don't even know. But as you'll see shortly, I got my hopes up for nothing. And I, I will say before I begin, I'm going to take the real names out of the story. I'm sure you can guess them, but I'm not going to confirm or deny them if, if you try, so don't ask. Um, okay, so anyway, this story. Um, toward the start of this year, a, a big auction house posted a, a big auction preview on social media. And there were a number of things that stood out to me, including some vintage basketball. So um, I wanted to repost that. I thought it was worth sharing so other people could see it. So that's what I did. And at the end of that post, I wrote, P.S. I feel like I could do wonders for some of your site's card write-ups. If you ever need a guy for basketball, dot, dot, dot. And that's all I wrote. Um, 
I wasn't really angling for anything there, but that was just my nice way of saying that their auction description sucked. They lacked passion, substance, and style. Um, and from what I've seen, they still do. But um, the owner of the auction house replied and said, well, email our careers department. We're hiring writers. And like I said, I, I wasn't really going for a, a position there, but it, it sounded like a unique opportunity. So I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll at least pursue it a little bit and see what comes of it. So I did as instructed. And eventually I got into an email chain with two of his employees who asked me to come up with samples for three listings that they provided. Uh, and when I say samples, you know, these were long descriptions that I, I spent a lot of time on. I spent the better part of an afternoon uh, several hours at least, because I took the opportunity very seriously. And then I submitted them, and I never heard back from them. There wasn't even a, you know, we'll look over these and get back to you. There wasn't even a simple thanks, right? It, it was just um, nothing. And a month later, I get an email from another one of their employees out of the blue asking for work samples. So I know that my name's in the system because you know, somehow they're asking me again, I, I got placed in some sort of, of hiring pool for this position. And I explained to this person that I already did this portion. I'm not doing it again, but I'd be happy to send them the same samples since that's what they were requesting, uh, which I did. And he said, you know, thanks. I'll look over them uh, over the weekend and I'll get back with you. Well, weekend quickly turned into a month, which quickly turned into never. Once again, I, I didn't get a, hey, thanks, you know, after that initial one, I didn't get a, hey, you know, I looked over these, we're, we're thinking about another direction, I didn't get a no, I didn't get anything. So, you know what they say, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I wasted a lot of time on this, and I wasn't happy about being jerked around like that, so I went right to the top. I messaged the person that, that asked me to do this in the first place that's in charge of this whole business. And um, I, I know I said I'm not going to name the name, so I'll change the name here for the sake of the story. Let's call him King Midas. Okay, King Midas. So I messaged him and I said, hey, if you have a chance at some point, I'd love to talk to you on the phone for five or ten minutes regarding a few people who do your hiring. Because I thought, you know what, this guy should know you know, he's not treating me poorly, but the people that he's got in charge of doing this are. He needs to know about that. Well, Midas didn't want to get on the phone. Instead, he responded with, No offense, but LMK, who in my org you wish to talk about and what the issue is, I assume you are unhappy about something. So then I spent more time typing everything out. And I let him know how his employees, mind you, three different ones, asked me to do a significant amount of sample work and then ghosted me. And his response was, was short and to the point. Sorry for your issues. I will forward them to, and then a certain person's name, part of growth pains. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if I agree with that. You know, growth pains. It's it's one thing when you start moving too fast in your website and all your stuff works like garbage. It is what it is. It's another thing when you move too fast and you disrespect people and their time along the way. You know, you can always just hire someone to fix a platform. Fixing relationships with people is a little more complex. Um, now, they made an attempt at that, at least after all of this, I guess because, you know, I, I made enough noise. I was a squeaky wheel here. 
um, because one of the people that forgot about me previously all of a sudden remembered and emailed me an apology. He said that he had talked to Midas. Um, although, you know, is it really sincere if it has to come about this way? And on top of that, at the end of it, he said, if you're still interested, I'd love to find a way to have you create some descriptions for an upcoming auction. I'm sure you would. Um, but if you're no longer interested in light of this, I totally understand. Um, to which I let him know I was definitely not interested in moving forward. Now, uh, for all I know, my experience with this company could have been an anomaly, but from here on out, I'm, I'm going to be fairly hesitant to deal with the hobby's moguls. Would I still consider a full-time job related to the hobby? Absolutely. But if someone wants me, they're really going to have to wow me from the get-go. Um, or just, or at least, you know, not treat me like dirt. Um, okay, I spent a little longer on that one than I thought I would. But let's, that, this, let's go to our very last question here, which comes from Troublesome Cards. This was a fun one. I like this one. He said, Fanatics just called... They want you to design a high-end and a low-end product to begin their licensing deal. They have purchased licenses of all card companies and have the ability to use anything past or present. What does your high and low product consist of? Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and start off the Fanatics regime with two Chronicles-like products. What I mean by that is this. There's going to be a low-end Chronicles that has a good mix of hoops, tops, and collector's choice. And then there's going to be a high-end Chronicles that has Exquisite, UD Ultimate, Immaculate, Flawless, National Treasures, only RPAs. And then one of the high-end Topps baseball brands like Museum Collection or Dynasty. We never really got that in, in basketball. Um, that way, Fanatics can get their feet wet when it comes to manufacturing. They can figure out some of what works and what doesn't. And while they're in that process, consumers are kind of um, blinded through the whole process because they're getting hit with such a huge blast of nostalgia right from the start. So if, as they're figuring that out, if they mess any of those brands up, you know, that's okay because all they're really doing is giving them a little time to figure out their own branding and they can move on from there. Uh, will we ever see anything like that? I doubt it, but you never know. There are so many unknowns when it comes to that Fanatics deal. And uh, just a quick plug, I actually talked a little bit about um, Fanatics and, and kind of where they're going and what we know so far with John Newman this week on an upcoming episode of Sports Card Nation podcast. That one's slated to come out on Black Friday. So for the, those of you that are listening, you know, if you're listening Friday, it's already out. But if not, just be on the lookout for that. All right. Well, there you have it. I want to thank everyone that took the time to submit a question I tried to respond to every question that I received by Tuesday, or if somebody asked multiple questions, I tried to at least answer one of them. Maybe there was something I said today that stood out to you, or maybe there's a point that you want clarified more. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast, or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing 
please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>